good morning, fellas. How's it going? Wonderful. Uh, so today we are having a, uh, a little conversation on what we've deemed to be the volume problem uh, in training. So a little bit of background on that. When we're referring to the volume problem in training, uh, the conversation is likely going to go into uh, the concept of loading and the concept of tissue capacities being able to handle and adapt to that load and how we all feel collectively with our experience uh, with you know high level athletes as well as uh, all the way down to the collegiate and amateur levels um, that a lot of the the training um, is is being done possibly without purpose uh, in that a lot of the training that we see in regular programming if we if we stop and look at all of the inputs being done, we, we, we start to notice that a lot of the inputs are overlapping um, in that there's much too much load and much too much volume being placed on, uh, on tissues by way of patternized exercises. Um, however, what we find is that because there's so much loading and a lot of that loading is being accommodated for mostly by the, uh, because of the intensities that athletes are choosing, uh, that a lot of the work that they're doing instead of going into building capacities, it's actually drawing away from their ability to accept load because there's too much load being placed uh, on the tissues. And this of course, parlays into the discussion of overtraining um, as well as the discussion as to how injuries occur. And just to review, of course, we've been lecturing this uh, all over the world for a long time now, uh, but if you take injury and you, and you pack it down into uh, its most simplest concept, it becomes a very easy mathematical equation whereby when the load going into tissue exceeds the load bearing capacity of that tissue, that tissue yields under the load and then uh, we have injury. So I suppose that the conversation today is talking about strategies in order to decrease the overall load while keeping the signal strength high enough um, to lead uh, to adaptation. So I'll throw out that question in general to either one of you, um, just regarding the loading problem or the volume problem. Is there anything that I've, I've missed conceptually overall? Um, the other thing I will say is obviously the three of us have discussed this at nauseum together for many, many years now. So I'll ask questions of you guys and you guys, uh, I'll pretend that maybe I don't know, or we don't lecture on this stuff and then we can go from there. So first off with regards to the loading problem, or the volume problem. Uh, maybe talk to me about why you, you, you do think it's a problem in your experiences. You want me to go first? Uh, let's go with yeah. first because you offered. Okay, yeah. Um, so this is, this is kind of my view on it, right? In the FRS internal strength model, one of the things that we did was we looked at the evolution of strength and strength training, right? And we kind of, you know, it's very easy to see when you look through at that lens that all of the training is gonna be centered around feats of strength, right? What do I mean by feats of strength? I mean like lifts, right? Like, so if you look at the West Side conjugate sequencing system, it's all set up around the three powerlifting lifts, right? So, so when you look at like the origins of strength training, it was always feats of strength. You look at the Soviets, uh, the ones that actually, uh, where the conjugate sequencing system came out of, where it emerged from, Right, that was all around the Olympic weightlifting lifts. Then Lou was able, Lou, Louis Simmons at Westside Barbell was able to then formulate his own system of training for powerlifting, right? And so what happens is you can see that the, 
all of the training was set up for these specific sports because these are sports. And there's a difference between training for sport and training to physically develop someone for sport. And I think that kind of got lost. And what people will do is they'll just simply look at the volume of let's say a lifter at Westside Barbell and they'll go, okay, well, this is the amount of volume that they're doing. This is what I should be doing. But then what I always tell people, right? Because I've been at Westside Barbell since 2011 is it's like when you look at like what a what a lifter is doing like that's his or her sport right so like their practice is inner is intermingled with their training right and people don't see that so if you're an athlete that's looking to physically develop yourself for skill acquisition right you don't need all the same volume as an olympic weightlifter or a, a guy at westside barbell or a girl at westside barbell what you need is the exact amount of volume that you need to build the specific capacities that you want. Mm -hmm. Then what also happened was, and so you can see how once you start to figure out how to set up a system of training for physical development to have skill acquisition, it's completely different in regards to, you know, what Westside Barbell or what the, con, uh, the Soviets were doing with the conjugate sequencing system for Olympic athletes with Medvedev, Zatorsky, Vershkansky, all those guys. So, what happened was it's kind of cool, right? We know because all of us have a background working in the clinic that we see injured athletes. A lot of, a lot of people don't know the high level of injury that's gonna happen uh, in sport and how these are actual things that you can mitigate and you can get ahead of. You may not be able to prevent it, but you can mitigate it, get ahead of it. But what happened is what do we see? We see joints and connective tissue blown up everywhere. And we go, hey, are you guys using this thing called training that you're using to develop absolute strength? Are you using it to go into the joint level and the connective tissue level? And they go, no. And you go, okay, well, these are untrained tissues and that's why everything's blowing up. So what we do is then we know that we have to start to allocate volume into those areas, which is what we do with the internal strength model. But, but then people go, well, where do I reduce the other volume? And it's like, okay, well, everything that is not at a stimulating or detraining or like to us, what we consider a low intensity that's going to help the athlete essentially uh, absorb uh, training effects, that stuff should get removed. So immediately the volume pr uh, problem is no longer a problem because you've removed all this volume. And now what you're doing is you're adding volume into the joint, uh, into joint, into connective tissue. And now it's, in, and now when you look at training effects, it's gonna be much more at a ecological equilibrium instead of everyone's training muscle, everyone's training nervous system and joints and connective tissue are blowing up and people are looking around like, I don't know what's going on. And you're like, come on guys. You, like you're not training the joint connective tissue. Mm -hmm. I want to unpack that a little bit um, before we get into the idea of intensity, because I think that's an understanding of the signal and what the body actually cares about versus, versus the noise uh, with training is ultimately what we're getting at. We're getting at the fact that if you understand um, signaling, I don't know why this is popping up. If you understand signaling, and you understand the way that the signal is being interpreted by the body, then a lot of the stuff that you see on the training program isn't necessarily signaling as much as it is sending the same uh, information over and over and over again, which uh, of course leads to the body accommodating to that signal, as you said. But more, before we get into that, I want to unpack something that you talked about with regards to strength versus skill. And I'm going to throw this to, to, uh, to Mike. Um, in terms of that, because you had said that, of course, people look to power lifters or Olympic lifters and they say, wow, those guys are strong or those guys are powerful. 
and you know I'm a jujitsu player and I want to be strong and powerful. Ergo, the the best thing for me to do as a jujitsu player is to somehow train as a a powerlifter. And you said that the problem with that is is that in powerlifting the training and the skill are merged, um, versus when you're training someone like a jujitsu player. Um, that is not in fact the case, i.e. when you're doing powerlifting, you're, you're, you're not really adding to the skill of jiu-jitsu. Um, and, and that becomes a problem, of course, because now you're training for two things. You're training for jiu-jitsu and you're training for powerlifting, both of which require whatever volume you f- foresee the other people to be doing. And then you end up doing double the volume, for example. And that's a, that's a skill versus strength question or concept maybe that's not understood. So Mike, can you unpack that a little bit more with regards to skill versus strength and and where the differences are or where people are seeing these two things as synonyms, I guess might be another way to to ask the question. Yeah, so I think I'll go back and just kind of piggyback off of uh, what John was just saying there. Uh, I think first of all, we have, I mean, again, we've tried to add to the industry and help uh, mitigate some of this. And, and, and I think, but one of the things that is a problem is that people don't have a clear definition of what strength is. <clears throat> so um, most people, and again, maybe I'm, you know, just blanket statementing here, but uh, I think most people would, would equate strength with the amount of weight lifted per exercise. <clears throat> and I think that leads partly to the volume problem that, that we are ultimately discussing because people then just build programs based on, on exercises and how much strength someone has the ability to display during that exercise. I think what we are trying to articulate is that Strength is not one thing. We talked about this in a previous podcast, I, I believe. Strength is not just one thing. Strength is, a, is an, a behavioral output that comes from the nervous system that is um, displayed at a tissue level. <clears throat> so we have tried to, 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 to say that there are different tissue levels that are all trainable that all have their own behavioral capacities that would ultimately be considered strength. So piggybacking again off of what John was saying, I think when you really try to understand that those are trainable entities, you know, you can, you can train connective tissue, you can train joints to, to have, you know, uh, movement behaviors that, that would allow for the development of skill, which I'll get into in a second. You can train muscle tissue to display physiological qualities or capacities to allow for the display of skill, which I'll get into in a second. I think when you start to understand that training can be technically more specific and tissue specific, it actually makes it very easy to understand where the problems may lie in programming. So, uh, and I wanna make a caveat there when we talk about specific, we are not talking sports specific. And this is kind of getting into that distinction of skill versus strength and how we ultimately train for each. I think the other problem that we've kind of run into perhaps that is ultimately leading to this volume problem is we are dissecting 
<clears throat> sport, athletes, activities, whatever. And we are ultimately dissecting that, that athlete and their movement behaviors into <clears throat> then things that are supposed to be trainable. So we take a movement and we say, well, there's an exercise for that. <laughs> yes, so, yes. so uh, you know, if your athlete displays um, some level of, of hip flexion and knee bend, well, ultimately everybody then just goes to a squat. If, you're all, if your athlete has to have some level of, uh, uh, or, or it's variations. If your athlete has some level of what we would call a hip hinge, you know, everybody just has this pre-programmed thing of, okay, well that, that equals deadlifting or kettlebell swinging or whatever the case is. So ultimately that is where the line gets blurred between training for strength and ultimately the behavior of the athlete to emerge an output and skill. So that's, that's ultimately where I think that gets, that gets blurred because people then say, okay, well, if I train, if I dissect the athlete and their movement that would occur in sport, and I make an exercise for that, or I give them an exercise for that, that ultimately will then translate into further skill development. And I don't think that that is inherently wrong uh, because that, that might have a place, but when you look at it from, you know, and what we've tried to do is we've tried to look at it from, you know, uh, 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 a neurological perspective, that's not really how we learn skill. Mm -hmm. We don't learn skill by doing rep repetition, 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 repetition. We learn skill by kind of probing our boundaries of what we currently have and understanding what we currently have as our boundaries and then trying to say, okay, well, I got to push these boundaries a little bit more and kind of probe them a little bit more. And that's ultimately how we learn, right? Whether that be cognitively or physically or whatever. So, how we try to make that distinction using uh, our internal strength model is <clears throat> we can take the athlete and understand their particular sport or movement requirements. We can then understand specifically what tissues would be involved, what behavior those tissues would have to display. We can ultimately create a very uh, <clears throat> enhanced, complete, specific program, but for those behaviors. But when you look at the program, it's not really specific. It's just, ge it's generalized strength training targeted towards these behaviors. And ultimately what that, that does is it allows us to really understand how we push tissue specific capacities. And if we push tissue specific capacities uh, appropriately, when that athlete then goes into the environment of skill-based learning, they have more to draw from right? They have more, more of that capacity can be pulled from so that their nervous system go starts to learn, hey, I have this. I, I have this ability to demonstrate a, a rate of force development in this particular position, not because I've specifically trained that position, but I've specifically trained the tissues that would allow me to have that behavior. And therefore, I, I now am learning how to use it in a, in a skill-based environment. The other thing that I think, um, does that make sense? <clears throat> in yes, terms yes. of- I have that, that, but I, but keep going, I'm gonna- That explanation. <clears throat> and so 
if you if you kind of um, if if I can refer a little bit to like uh, I know we've we've referenced it quite a bit um, uh, the work of like Mark Latash uh, whose work kind of builds upon like Bernstein's early work of repetition without repetition. <clears throat> Bernstein talked a little bit about having uh, a variety of uh, ways to be able to do the same thing, which is what he called repetition without repetition. And so that if you have a variety of ways to do the same thing, ultimately, based on your level of capacity, uh, you will start to groove ways to be able to do that particular skill, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Latash kind of uh, maybe reframed that a little bit and said that your ability to learn skill and become uh, efficient at skill is based on a principle of abundance. So he has this principle called the principle of abundance. And the principle of abundance basically means the more ways and behavioral outputs that you have, the more capacity you have makes you more efficient at doing skills. Not that you are, um, <clears throat> you know, you are technically then grooving certain patterns, but you have this, this window whereby if one pattern doesn't work in a specific situation in a sporting skill, you have another way to do it. Mm -hmm. That if you specifically train patterns, you might not have trained that pattern, but if you train behaviors, now you have the capacity to do that skill in a way that maybe you haven't specifically trained because that skill ultimately emerges from tissues that ultimately emerges from how your nervous system uses those tissues to create that, that output. And the other thing I, I wanted to mention just to kind of tie this up is, uh, <clears throat> we talked about intensity there. And I think we are always in this uh, idea that everything has to be high intense. So whether you're, or, or over high intensity. So whether you're training for strength, it has to be high intensity. If you're doing skill, you have to do it at this high intensity game speed all the time. Well, if you're training, as we would say, at, at a high level and then at a low level, ultimately, again, relating to that volume problem, instead of training at a middle level, that's where your skill work occurs. So that ultimately you're not pulling resources from training and skill-based behaviors. You have your training at this level and this level and everything in between is where you start to learn in the sporting environment, how to use that stuff. So you're not pulling, so your skill is not inf influencing negatively your strength training or vice versa. And I think that's, uh, that's another reason uh, where people start to equate skill and strength and they kind of blur that line, which then ultimately leads to a huge amount of volume uh, for the athlete. There's a lot there. I, I want to, one thing I, I just came to my mind right now. So I guess what we're saying now is that, well, I guess it's important to state rather that skill is not an external thing, despite the fact that it's displayed externally. Correct. Uh, yes. Skill is, is, is actually an internal thing, which is a display of what is internally possible. And I think 100%, that's actually a, a really, really great way of saying it. That's why I thought of it. Yeah. And I, and I, and I also noticed uh, just now that you're wearing an old school FRC shirt. 
This is, this is on the bottom. I have like this is the original. Bag. That's the original, buddy. You know how our our wardrobe is like it's fucking it's all FRC control yourself and West Side stuff. So I have like yeah, the only thing that I buy now is bottoms. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't even wear any, I don't even wear any during podcasting, which is crazy. But I have like a whole a whole thing like uh, of all of the shirts, and I grabbed this one from the very bottom. I almost forgot about it. Old school. Okay, so. Uh, and we talk about that idea that's that's that strength is an internal emergence and that skill is an an internal emergence based on the qualities of strength that you that you have. And when I say strength again, I want to redefine it in that strength is not uh, how much you can lift, like you said, uh, but strength is the ability to amalgamate tissue capacities into a, a highly specific outcome in order to achieve a particular a particular task. Now, another thing that I might have that I thought of is, you know, why would this why would training go that way? Like if training is supposed to be going towards creating the optimal performance um, in an athlete, why might we get confused that by <clears throat> putting in these patterns, it, it, it'll, it'll be better? And I think the reason is because in an untrained person, the effects are always immediate. And we've talked about this before. It's like every, every trainer I've ever met, I've never met a trainer where I go to them and I'm like, Hey man, you like your job? Yeah. I like my job. Are you any good at it? No, I suck. I, 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 I can't accomplish anything. All my clients are weak and, and pitiful. I've never met that trainer. Right. Uh, which leads me to believe that, well, leads me to think that everything can't be working if that makes sense. But if you give me an untrained person, I mean, it doesn't matter what you do. You can tap your foot for a repetitive amount of time. And if that person's heart is in such a scenario where that intensity simulates the heart, then technically that's training and that person gets better. I think what might be happening is that people implement these things. Like you said, Mike, you take a sport, you break it down into a particular movement that that sport needs to do. You, you um, match that to a, a patterned exercise and then you get better at the exercise and you go, oh my God, I must be getting better at everything overall. And to a certain extent, if they were untrained, they, they will. But what's more important, I think, is that when you work at the highest level, I'm not saying this to be arrogant, but it just so happens that we've all had these opportunities where you have the guy in front of you or the girl in front of you, and, and you're like, well, this is the best representation of a human being playing this particular sport, and they're asking me to make them better. And I think that's the point where we start to determine well, what is exactly going to make them better? Is it, if you get the best basketball player in the world, I mean, what is going to make that, or the best hockey player? Is it, is it producing a better shot? Is it like, what is the quality that's going to make that person better in order to jump them up a level? Does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I just wanted to say those two things. You guys have anything to add to that about the idea that there's untrained and trained and whether, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with the highly trained, that's where you learn uh, how to bump up the, the levels by millimeters. But when you're down here, anything you do bumps it up by, by, by meters. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and until you get to this upper level of ability, in which case running the pattern is not going to add to your ability. It's actually going to start to draw away from your ability as well as the, the, it's going to add to the overall load. So now you're getting closer and closer to those injury levels when you start to exceed the levels that the tissues are able to, to undergo. So Quint, you had something to say there? 
Yeah, so I know both you guys, this is something that we've lectured on. So if you guys want to add to it, uh, feel free to at any time. But essentially how that worked, right, in, in regards to, you know, if you open up the science and practice of strength training, which is kind of like the Bible of strength training, written by Dr. Zatsiorski, right, who obviously was one of the leading Soviet sports scientists when they, and that's where the conjugate sequencing system emerged from. Um, <clears throat> what, what he describes in his book, it's called the MSD, the muscular strength deficit, right? And what that showed was when they hooked the difference between absolute strength and maximal strength. So absolute strength is how much force can be readily generated and discharged by that athlete. And then there's a gap between how much can be actively done. And then when you hook up EMS to them, how much can the discharge more? And so that's why, they, you know, if you're training to acquire more strength, uh, and we talked about strength, like in old terms or in non, uh, in, in like, uh, let's say our terms, where it's a nervous system based capacity, um, there's a difference between that and that gap, they actually tested, right? And so the MSD, the muscular strength deficit is between five to 30%. In, uh, in actually, believe it or not, uh, trained athletes, right? That's because they're not utilizing the superior means to do it. So the example that we give to piggyback off what you were saying, Dre, is it's like, okay, let's say you got an athlete who is trying to uh, generate, you, you got an absolute strength sport athlete where they need that nervous system-based capacity and you have to bring them from 5% to 4%. Well, you can't just do any training. You have to do the superior means of training for that athlete because if you don't do it, you will actually be training, be detraining that athlete, even though you have the conscious intent as a strength coach to make them better, right? So that's kind of where all that stuff emerged from in regards to like, hey, there is a superior way to start to do things. And that's where the four methods of strength training emerged out of the Soviet Union. And so, uh, and so when you're tasked with the original question that you kind of asked is it's like, because from, from, from what I'm hearing is it's like, there's a lot of noise out there. So like if you have an untrained person, just like you said, they can do anything and elicit training effects. But if you have a trained athlete, if you start to do that same, whatever inputs that you're doing, it will actually make them worse. And I think because maybe a lot of people don't have ex uh, enough long-term experience working with high level athletes that they haven't actually seen the athlete start to literally accommodate and get worse from doing the training. If so, then that's when you would start to go, okay, hey, we need to start to train other things. And then to kind of close on that, because so, so the whole topic of that spiel is essentially like exercise science, right? And, and that's through the theory and practice of doing it. So this isn't just theory-based stuff. This is in the practice of actually doing it has converged that, listen, there's superior training inputs to get you the actual output that you want. Right. And so, and so that's kind of the problem that you see is so many people are going to be untrained that any training input will work. But when you're talking about high level athletes, you have to be selecting and constraining them to do the right input at the right level. And then that brings up like the levels. So if you look at what's currently being training, trained, right, you got muscle and nervous system based stuff, but joint and connective tissue isn't. Okay. Well, it's quite simple. Like you asked, you got an NHL guy, you got an NBA person, like how do you make them better? Well, you start to go into what's untrained and start to train it. And then that puts you into the cycle of, uh, of you know, 
expanding that internal environment or those internal capacities, like Dr. Shivers was talking about in skill acquisition. So now you're starting to physically develop that individual to actually ready them to, to be able to uh, be able to generate emergences of whatever their skill is. Okay, so you said something there about the four uh, methods of strength training that came out of the Soviet system. Not everyone's going to know them. Can you just pop those out really quickly for me, if you don't mind? Yeah, so quite quickly. Uh, so I'll say just kind of my definition and our definition of what, how we see the conjugate sequencing system. Uh, which was generated out of the uh, Soviets uh, training for uh, Olympic sports. Mm -hmm. And what they figured out, right, is a couple of things. One, there's only four methods of training. That's in Medvedev's manual too. Uh, he writes about that back in the 70s, if anyone, A.V. Medvedev, who was not only uh, a, a great coach, but he was also an elite level Olympic weightlifter. And I think he's the first Soviet to get his PhD in actual weightlifting. Um, mm -hmm. So he wrote in his manual that there's four uh, there's essentially everything falls into four methods. What are those methods? You have maximal effort method in regards to the strength training for uh, skill, uh, which is obviously weightlifting, uh, mm -hmm. Olympic weightlifting. That would be, uh, you would take essentially 90 to greater than 90 of your one rep max in a load. And then you would, you would do uh, training at that level. What happens with that is that increases uh, absolute strength levels, but remember absolute strength is going to move slowly. So velocity would come back down. That's where they figured out. You got to take a percentage of that. You got to train in at optimal velocity at different velocities. That's dynamic effort method. So that trains both sides of the force velocity curve. So you got max effort, dynamic effort. Then on top of it, they knew that you, Hey, listen, if we start to give the athlete and we talk about this in one of the lectures, right? This is kind of like the first form of internal strength training, but they didn't maybe know that they were doing it where it's like, Hey, if we start to give the nervous system more uh, forced, uh, force producing tissue, i.e. muscle mass, then, then those lifts can go up as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So then that, that now you have repeated efforts method to failure. Right. And then if you do repeated efforts, but not to failure, maybe to elicit conditioning like effects. Okay. So there's your four max effort method, dynamic effort method, repeated effort methods to failure, repeated effort methods, not to failure. Okay. So in other words, just to, to sum that up, from a physiological perspective, <clears throat> those four blankets, they, they, they cover all that can be done in strength training. In other words, there's, no, there's nowhere else to go <clears throat> in terms of training. When you are training, you are putting the person into one of those four categories, no matter what the decision. Um, so that being the case, Mike, I give you a NBA player and I say, I need to improve jump height, okay? So when we talk about internal versus external, let's, let's get into a, a more specific example so that people actually understand. Because I think just before I, I give it to you, what we're gonna say collectively is that just because we train the athletes at both the internal and external level, and we have a focus at the internal level versus the focus being on the external level as is done in what we call the standard model, but within our system of training, we're not reinventing the rules. So in other words, we work with the same physiological research that is available to any, anybody else. However, the, the, the funnels that we're using um, in order to funnel work into areas, we're funneling the work specifically 
to the internal level, which can then be utilized from a skill perspective in order to emerge uh, a particular outcome in the external environment. So um, giving this to Mike, if we talk about jumping, bounding, plyometrics, uh, you know, the things that that whenever I say I want someone to jump higher, the things that automatically come into people's heads, how do we reshape that or refocus it internally? What does that even mean? Does that does the question make sense, Mike? Uh, yeah. So, so if if we take a, a, a let's just call it a basketball player, and you want to improve jump height, that's what you're asking me. How do we how do we understand? training from an internal level to allow that behavior to emerge yes well let's 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 look at it from a standard model level first and then that might help us create some distinctions and you guys can add whatever so in in my estimation standard model might be okay well jumping involves the act of hip flexion knee bending ankle plantar flexion right so like triple extension mm-hmm. let's call it uh <clears throat> or flexion and then triple extension so basically that from a standard model that's going to involve some level of squatting <clears throat> and that squatting is going to have to uh happen from you know uh, with a particular amount of load let's call it and so again from the standard model i would assume that most people would say okay, well, we have to continually increase the amount that you squat <clears throat> so that you can somehow turn that into jumping. There might be some accessory lifting in there, um, calf raises or like some ankle plantar flexion type thing. Um, there might be some variations of leg pressing and you know, hamstring curling and leg extending and all these sort of things. You guys would probably agree with all this. And then we would immediately translate that into essentially jump training, right? So first let's make the distinction. That, That again right now is the blurring of strength and skill because jumping essentially is a skill of basketball, correct? So it is a skill that most basketball players will have. Some will be able to display that skill externally better than others. Some will be able to have higher amounts of jumping compared to others. But essentially jumping is a skill, meaning there is like a technique to it. There is some learning involved uh, with it, um, so on and so forth. So what I, what we would do is we would say, okay, well, first of all, we have to understand the movement required to improve the jumping of skill, uh, uh, the skill of jumping, what joints are involved. We would say there are ankle joints involved, there are hip joints involved, there are knee joints involved. Probably you could take that up into the spine and even the shoulders to to use the arms and so on and so forth. And we would wanna know what the standard Uh, what this athlete has in terms of the standard of what their current ability to use those joints is. And we would use cars analysis for that uh, to understand where they might be able to uh, move into very well, maybe where they can't move into very well. 
And so we would get an understanding of how they're able to use hips, knees, and ankles relative to, you know, space, but also relative to the act of jumping, which is a skill. You guys are with me up to this point, correct? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> then we would also have to understand, okay, so what are the behavioral qualities of strength that would allow someone to improve the skill of jumping? Well, there is going to be an absolute strength requirement for sure. And that's going to be relative to the athlete and their body weight. Agreed. Agreed. So I don't know exactly what that is, but we would have to, you know, do some analysis on, you know, how much that would be. So, you know, there would be a, a component of external training for absolute strength in a squat, for example. But for us, we would take it even deeper and we would say, well, <clears throat> is if there is not enough uh, ability to use the joint effectively for that skill, that is a trainable quality. So, you know, we call that workspace, which, you know, if there's not enough workspace or usable workspace within a, a zone required of that joint to do a skill, well, that is a trainable quality for us. So if that was the case where this didn't exist, we could train for that. And for us, that would be training for capsular space as we, as we call it. And there are means and methods that we use to train capsular space. In addition, if there was enough capsular space, well, you would still want to put that in the program to try to improve jump height. You're just going to put it at a different intensity and a different frequency and so on and so forth. But it's still going to be something that has to be maintained because, again, we're working on the principle of abundance. So if we can take and maintain that stuff, then ultimately that will carry over into the learning of how to jump higher, more effectively, more efficiently, so on and so forth. In addition, we would also say that there is going to be some level of, you know, explosive strength or reactive strength that is required of this athlete to be able to uh, perform the act of jumping to a certain higher height than they currently do. And all of us would say, okay, well, <clears throat> hold on. The standard model thinkers would probably say, okay, well, explosive strength, reactive strength that should equate to some level of agility training or like footwork or like small bounding work and so again you know they would add that which again kind of gets into the volume problem perhaps because now you're training absolute strength on one end and you're you're doing a lot of bounding work on the other end and those are going to pull resources from each other we would go okay well that reactive ability comes from a specific tissue behavior and the strength of connective tissues. And so we would want to make sure that there is enough, first of all, there's enough length in those connective tissues. So if we're looking at jumping, that means that we would have to have enough length in some anterior thigh tissue. We would have to have enough length in um, some anterior uh, shin tissue, some calf tissue. Uh, and if there wasn't, there are means and methods that we have to improve those qualities, which are all trainable qualities. Uh, we would start to then put this person on what we would call the <clears throat> length loading progression, which is progressing from creating length to loading at length, loading through length, and then starting to build specific behaviors at length 
of what we would call stiffness. So do we want that stiffness to come quickly? Do we want that stiffness to come over time? These are all, again, trainable qualities of strength of connective tissue that we would have this athlete. I mean, we would understand where this athlete would exist on this continuum and we would, you know, put them according to where they are and make that a trainable quality. So now we have, you know, a program and I'm simplifying this so you guys can add, but we have a program that might be training absolute strength in something like a squat or a squat variation, which is standard model. But for us, we're doing it to try to improve, not the weight on the bar. We're trying to make it a neurological capacity that this athlete has that they can uh, pull on at any point in time when they need to go up for a layup or a dunk or a jump shot or whatever. And then we're simultaneously training the strength behavioral outputs of every tissue that and joint that would be involved in the act of jumping. And then we would allow the athlete to then practice the act of jumping. That might be where we communicate with the skill coach and say, look, we're training these things on the back end. So as we start to train these things on the back end, again, creating those capacities, that abundance of capacity, the skill coach can now, you know, tweak little things in the performance of jumping, where they're taking off from the depth of the knee bend, all of these things, the use of the arms such that simultaneously all these things will kind of funnel into uh, the act of jumping higher. Mm -hmm. And so what I, what I kind of wanted to piggyback on to that as well was <clears throat> this concept of trying to understand like, <clears throat> what, what does, like, what is high performance? <clears throat> like high performance doesn't mean the same thing for everybody. Because getting to this particular thing, if you have a, uh, 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 let's say we had two basketball players using the same example, and they're both the same height, they both weighed the same, and one person jumps, I don't know what a good jump would be, let's say they jump 30 inches, and the second person jumps 25 inches. And we're trying to say, we would have an, an output that we would want, we want to get these athletes to 32 inches because that's going to make them more effective. Somehow we have some analysis that tells us that. Mm -hmm. Well, we have to understand that that difference between those two athletes doesn't make the training the same. Yes, yes, yes. yes. You know what I'm saying? And, and I think that's what we see a lot is we see like, oh, well, we're trying to improve jump height. So this athlete who has to now go seven inches higher versus the athlete that has to go two inches higher you know, kind of getting back into what we were talking about before, they can't have the same program, <clears throat> yep. right? Because that two inch difference is gonna be different to acquire than that seven inch difference. So trying to understand like where you are trying to go, where the athlete currently is, like where is their current standard and how do we make relative gains for each one of them to pull all of their capacities up to get to a certain level. Mm -hmm. Right. So that person who's at 30 inches, maybe that just means that they don't have a specific tissue capacity 
available to them that's going to make them more efficient in jumping and be able to explore. So maybe that's a reactive strength issue. They have the nervous system capacity. They just don't know how to specifically funnel that, re that explosiveness into uh, through some tissues to allow that jump to occur. Whereas the, 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 the athlete at 25, maybe they just don't have the neurological capacity. They can't draw from the nervous system uh, effectively. So they have to start at a different, at a different point. They can't all start the same. And I think this is a really uh, important point for, for people to understand, particularly when you get into higher levels of performance, you have to know where the where you want the athlete to be and you have to know where they're currently starting from because this jump is going to be different than this jump and if you don't have the available information for that and that information by the way just can't can't just come from how much weight they lift <laughs> it has to come from understanding both how they do skill and how strong they currently are and understanding that if I know both of those things, I should understand the behavioral capacities that I need to change ultimately for each athlete. Okay, so there's 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 a lot there um, to discuss. I don't know if you guys would do, if you guys would uh, like to add anything to that training. I mean, it was pretty general, but I think yeah, that's kind of where think, we all I would. Think, I think we can get in even more specifically. And I think <clears throat> just to review something that you said, if you have these two hypothetical athletes, and they go into the jump training program, you're actually, the standard model really puts you into a jump practice program because a lot of the jump training seems to be, let's practice the jump, right? Mm. And, and therein lies the problem is that the, the, the answer you're trying to solve is how do I improve the jump, not how do I display the jump over time, right? And again, it goes down, it goes back to what level of athlete you have experience with, because if you have... Uh, you know, an amateur athlete that wants to improve jump height and really doesn't have a lot of any other training, you can pick any one of those qualities. You can say increase absolute strength. Yeah, they're going to jump higher. You can say increase calf raise. Yeah, they're going to jump higher. Um, but again, the signal to noise, you can't really take that person and then make conclusions as to how to train the next person who might already have maximized the capacity to use the tissues they have. So now if we take the same example and we take the guy who, who, who jumps as high as they can jump, that jump is a direct result of the accumulation of the capacities they have. So what are the capacities? Their absolute strength, their ankle range of motion, which is the access point to how much tissue they can actually use in that jump. The amount of red stuff, the muscular tissue, how fast can that tissue function? The, the stiffness of the connective tissue and where does that contraction go into, that jump is all a, a, an accumulation of all of those factors. And if, if you get a person who has maximized those factors, that's where we find out how to improve jump height. And the way that you improve jump height in that person is not to say, just go and jump. They've already done that. The per in that case is to say, okay, where where can we raise the bar in their individual tissue capacities in order to allow them to jump higher? So here's the example. You have that athlete. And again, I think this, a lot of it goes back to the assessment, because if you don't have an assessment in place to be able to tease out the differences between problems with muscular versus connective versus joint versus neural, 
you'll always use the standardized concept of, like you said, how much weight can you push on the bar, right? Which is not good enough. Like for example, if you have an athlete who's maximized the amount of jump height they can get out of their tissues, well, we can say, okay, well, in their FRA, what is their dorsiflexion capacity? In other words, how, how much can they dorsiflex their foot in order to generate potential energy that can then be utilized um, into, into kinetic energy to make this jump occur? And if they can, let's say, dorsiflex their ankle to 95 degrees, well, that, that restriction in ankle dorsiflexion restricts the access to tissue that would then allow them to, dro- to drive more force through that, that, that plantar flexion movement. So in order to train that person more, it would be a matter of not doing, like you said earlier, you, know, you, you listed eight or nine exercises that in a standard model, if you go, we want to increase jump height, what are we going to do? And you said they might do squats and they might do this and they might do that. So you, you actually listed eight or nine exercises. And the way that we understand exercise from a historical perspective is each of those eight or nine is getting, you know, three by five, three sets of five or three sets of 10 or whatever it is. And when you take nine exercises and you multiply them by three sets and exercise, you have an inordinate amount of information that that tissue has to process. And and what we're trying to say is that the body only has so many resources. The nervous system can only pay so much attention at one time to a particular quality. Um, so getting back to what I was saying before, we might erase, you know, eight of those exercises and we might keep, uh, let's say a squat as our absolute strength, uh, exercise. Now, Quint, we always talk about, it doesn't matter what the absolute strength exercise you choose, which I think is very important because if we're talking now to a professional team and, and the S and C coach for the professional team and they don't want to injure the players. So when we start talking about absolute strength, they all get all panicky. I don't want to, you know, maximal squats are dangerous or maximal, this is dangerous. We're not saying to use necessarily maximal squats in one particular way. For an absolute strength measure, we're saying, you know, well, what is the, what does your client like to do? What are they very good at doing? Lunging? Are they better at lunging than squatting? Are they better at deadlifting? Then use that as your absolute strength exercise. Because really with absolute strength, all we're trying to do is drive the nervous system's capacity to output energy into the tissues. It doesn't matter what you're doing, right? It's not, that's not the point. So if we keep that one, right, that's in the program. You have to push absolute strength at least until the point where you've reached the maximal, the absolute strength, which is, um, cu- which is coupled with that particular sport. Example you're playing a sport where I have to move someone else. Well, I have to be strong enough to move my body weight plus their body weight, right? But if you're in a sport where all that matters is your ability to move yourself, then I don't need that high level of absolute strength. So just the idea of defining where, what level of absolute strength do you need? And do you have it? Yes or no? Because if the answer is yes, which is mostly what we get when we're dealing with the highest level athlete, most of them have, or they should by that time, they have the, the, the amount of absolute strength they need going any further in the squat, taking a basketball player learning to wants to jump higher and taking them into a 500, 600 pound squat. That is a bunch of wasted time. It's a bunch of wasted volume. And you're actually drawing back from that athlete. So if we assume that they have 
two times body weight in their squat. And we're happy with that. You go, okay. So now the absolute strength exercise, we put that in just to linchpin their absolute strength so that we can keep that high level of neurological output. Now, if we take that neurological output and we redirect that neurological output back into the body, now we can use that neurological output in order to drive more quality in the person. In this case, if the person's range of motion was 95 degrees, if we can unlock another 10 degrees, okay, that unlocking of 10 degrees is, is a, another window of opportunity whereby if we now apply the four methods of strength training in that new window, now we're getting new capacity. So now we're getting, let's say, increased fascicular length across that new 10 degrees. And if you have increased fascicular length, meaning you have more sarcomeres in series, the velocity ability for each individual muscle cell greatly improves. Okay. So now you go, we have a new range of motion. Now, instead of doing, you know, lunge and squat and Romanian this and blah, 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 that, and a thousand exercises doing the same signal, we have our absolute strength linchpin. Now let's take the exercise and let's say do a pails and rails for the ankle, which is a really high intensity level in order to try to break open new range. And then once we have the range, the next six to eight week block, let's fill in the range with connective tissue stiffness. And then the next six to eight week block, let's fill in the, that's now that we have connective tissue stiffness, let's add speed parameters to that stiffness in the exact way that would help them jump. And now let's see them jump. So in other words, what you're saying, Mike, is that there's absolute strength plus internal capacities. And then you take those things and then go practice with them. But what people are doing is they're taking the practice and they're shoving it in to their training. And training is not practicing. And practicing is not training. And unless there's that distinction, I don't know that, that people would, would be able to uh, really fully comprehend what we're saying. So once again, from, from this, we're not saying to change the essence of strength training. We're saying that the focus should change. Now, if we put the focus back into the person and we say they need more range of motion, they need this, they need that. Most people, and you might disagree, but most of the athletes we get, I would say the vast majority of them have never really trained range of motion to the extent that we do. So they would do stretching, you know, mobility demonstrations, um, et cetera, et cetera. But if you take most athletes and you go, when was the last time you put forth a, a real effort to increase the workspace of your ankle or to give me more dorsiflexion? It, it, they, they didn't, they, they don't have it. So what I think we do is we, we just look at the natural ability to jump. And then we categorize that guy's a really good jumper. That guy's not as good a jumper. That guy's not a good as jumper because we're never trying to push that level. And then we just select the best jumper for the team. And then we go, well, what kind of training did they do? It happens on Instagram all the time. You see a guy, a, a guy jumps up, a, a shorter guy jumps up and slams the ball. So everyone's like, Oh my God, whatever he's doing, I need to do. And then they, he goes and he shows his exercises. And again, it's eight or nine exercises. It's squatting. It's, it's, it's the normal stuff. And then you go, okay, well, maybe that's what I need to do so I can jump like him. But he's not you. You don't have a good jump. That's the point of the training. He already does. 
So now we're not talking about genetic predispositions. We're talking about taking someone and pushing that boundary. And that boundary is their individual tissue capacities. That's, that's what the jump is. It's like the jump is not this ethereal concept. It is the ability for your tissues to do this individually amalgamated into a jump, right? And again, another thing I want to say is you're going back to those eight or nine exercises and you said they go to max capacity every time and they're, they're always trying to, you know, um, to work as hard as you can and, and, and weight is the, is the goal. But if you understand the strength velocity curve, then actually weight at one point becomes the opposite of the goal because the higher you go in weight, the lower you're going in speed. And this is where we start saying, you can take a guy from a, you know, a 200 pound uh, uh, squat and you can put them to a 300 pound squat and then you can see a reduction in their jump height. Because once again, they're not getting to the quality of what is a jump, which is the ability to express speed by way of force funneled through connective tissue over a range of motion. That's what a jump is. Does that, does that make sense? Uh, obviously, it's, it's and again, great. if your assessment doesn't say, well, how much dorsiflexion do they have? Of the dorsiflexion, do they have the uh, enough? If they have enough, how much of it is passive and how much of it is active? Because if you have a lot of passive, you don't even have the ability to utilize that tissue to add to your jump anyway. But if you have something like a functional range assessment running, well, now I know how much inversion, how much eversion, how much plantar flexion, how much dorsiflexion of all of those things, how much of it is passive, how much of it is active. There's a big active to passive ratio. Awesome. Let's close the gap so that we can actually use the ranges of motion and give them actual potential. And then once that's done, what quality do we need to, to, to heighten? If you take that high level athlete, the best jumper in the world, and you look at their program and you go, well, shit, you've done a lot of work on the muscular system. And this is what we see. We go, you don't have any work here for the connective tissue system specifically. And you haven't for the last 10 years. Guess what? Eliminate red stuff work, focus on white stuff, which is untrained. And the, 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 the jump heights are not going to go slowly. They're going to jump in leaps and pardon the pun, but they're going to jump up in leaps and bounds because you're finding untrained tissue. And what did we say? Untrained tissue. That's where you're going to get the maximal amount of benefit from training. And that's really what training should be doing, especially at the highest level of athletics. Quint, anything on that? Yeah. So essentially what we're saying, right. But haven't directly said is the volume problem is, is, is two fronts. One front is the fact that uh, we're saying that there's too much volume uh, in external base training only and not enough. And so, and so we're saying start to strip that volume out, but we're saying there's no volume at the internal level. So for instance, it, it, right. So it's a two, it's a two. Uh, and instead of just saying, Hey, this is the issue. What we did was, you know, create the internal strength model so that then people knew how to effectively and efficiently train at that level. But this is interesting. Let's take that example of the basketball player one more time and let's see what happens when it's external model only training applied to it. So you have the athlete who has limited dorsiflexion. And what we're going to do is we're going to continue to increase this nervous system base capacity that's absolute strength. So the nervous system can now generate and drive more force. 
but on the back end, we know that that ankle joint isn't getting trained. Okay, and what that what's going to happen is, let's say that the, the the ankle joint stays the same and it doesn't get worse, but absolute strength goes up with absolute strength being the nervous system base capacity to generate and discharge force. Okay, now we have an issue where you don't have access to connective tissue. So have you run absolute strength, this nervous system base capacity up to a level where now there's gonna be tissue blow up on a tissue and a joint that are completely untrained. And if it's completely untrained, there's your volume problem, the back end of the volume problem that you were discussing where it's like, well, these are untrained tissues, right? That the nervous system has to use. It has to use the joint, which technically we could say it's articular capsule, but then all of the other articulating, uh, art, uh, articulating tissues that enable that to happen. Mm -hmm. But uh, mm -hmm. go on with this. So I brought this one up because I think this is where, I know Mike, you were talking about this and you touched on this as well, but I think a, a general understanding as to defining strength training, not as training, but as strength signaling. I think this is where, where we solve the volume problem. Because as soon as you understand each individual exercise as a signal sending information to the nervous system, once you understand that signal and how that signal was sent, you understand when that signal was, was, was had. So in other words, once I send a signal, sending the same signal you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 more times is gonna add <clears throat> noise to your training and it's not going to do anything to increase the capacity. The signal set, like once the signal set, your body is going to accept the signal and say, okay, I'm going to define that signal. What do I have to do to respond to the signal? And the signal is only four of them. As you said, there's those four types of exercises. So if the signal is, holy shit, that tissue failed. So there was a demand placed on it and that tissue was unable to meet the demand. It failed. Well, that signal is going to tell the body, I need more stuff, right? And, and, and that's how it, but if you don't go to failure, then the body goes, okay, I have enough stuff to deal with this, this particular problem. And now I can find more efficient ways to deal with the problem, but you will not drive the addition of more stuff unless you prove to the body that more stuff is needed. Okay. So brings us back into these these three um, levels of intensity, so to speak, with regards to training. And like you said, anything that you do, there's gonna be, it's either gonna be a stimulating signal, which is used to acquire something new. It's gonna be a retraining signal, which is used to maintain whatever you have, or it's gonna be a detraining signal, which will be used to maximize resources, blood flow, nutrient flow, uh, tissue healing, et cetera, et cetera. So the problem, uh, I there's a lot of problems with regards to, to this, this slide. Uh, I think the first one that I wanna point out is the one that Mike, you said, is that the vast majority of training, and if you look at anyone's program, the vast majority of training is happening in this retraining level. In other words, you take a, a professional athlete, you put them into a, a particular uh, club and the, the, the SNC coach, you know, they don't wanna do absolute strength. They don't want to injure the client. They don't want it. So this stuff gets taken down a few notches and, and then you start doing the same things over and over. And the problem here is that 
you're using the same volumes over and over. And these are the same volumes and loads that you're using during practice, during play, and during training. And, and no tissue can, can take that amount of punishment. So what we're saying, and what we say in, the, in, in, in FRC and in the internal strength uh, model is that we need to keep training, and you can disagree with me, but we need to be very cognizant about removing training from this particular region of retraining because retraining is not signaling change it's it's keeping what you have so what we tend to do is we tend to drive training up to stimulating levels for very specific things that we're trying to acquire we might take keep re, uh, retraining levels but we minimize those just to linchpin qualities or to maintain them and then we do actually a lot of these detraining loads as well. So if anything, we're running all the way up here and we're running all the way down there, whereas most people are in what we call their neutral habitual zone. And in a neutral habitual zone, it's another way of saying this is the zone where the body already knows what to do. It, it, it already has maximized the capacities needed in this zone. So if we just keep circling through this neutral habitual zone, what we're actually doing is we're, we're trying to really find out at what level where will our tissue explode under the volume, but we're not pushing capacity. And I, I also will bring up the idea that it might seem obvious when we say it, but individual exercises don't, don't live only in this versus this versus this. Or another way of saying that is that the exercise itself is not the, the most important thing. It's the intensity at which you do the exercise. So in other words, the endocrine response to training, and I talked about this uh, in an earlier podcast uh, with, with uh, who, who was I talking about this with? Duncan from the UFC, the UFC PI, who's, who studied uh, endocrine responses. Duncan French, Dr. Duncan French, shout out to, to Dr. French. So we talked about the, the idea that you know, um, any exercise you take, if you take it to an incredibly high level of intensity, the endocrine response, it, it's not going to know any better. Like the endocrine response doesn't wait for the deadlift and the bench press in order to give you increased testosterone or increase this. The system doesn't know what exercise you're doing. It only reads intensity. And for us, that's brilliant because now we can say, instead of doing eight or nine of the same type of high level exercise to max efforts, right? Let's take those exercises out and let's put one in to increase dorsiflexion of the ankle, which by the way, you've never actually tried to train for a long period of time. So now if I funnel high amounts of energy into that exercise, it's untrained. So how many sets do I need to send the signal? I, I need one. You know, when you're doing five sets, six sets, seven sets, what you're saying is, that you need a lot of sets to actually send the signal. That's trained. If you are working on untrained tissue, one set at maximal level is probably as much as you can ever do. So if you look at our programming with our athletes, you know, it might be exercise, 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 and there might be eight or nine listed, but a lot of them are one set, two sets, one set to failure, one more set, and you're almost done because we're specifying untrained tissue and we're not losing the concept of intensity. It's another thing that athletes often, when they see our program, they go, holy shit, like this is all I'm doing. 
And then they actually do it. And then they go, holy shit, I can't do any more. Like that was so intense for me that my body clearly is, is at its wits end. It can't do anymore. And that's because of the selection process. We're finding untrained capacities and driving them up. Whereas other people are playing within the capacities that they have, um, which is really not driving any capacity up or down. So I'll leave this up and maybe you guys can um, riff on what I was just saying or add to it in, in any way you see fit. Yeah, I just want to kind of say that, you know, these intensities, the reason why, you know, it's at a detraining intensity, the reason why it's termed that is because these are the intensity levels that were taken to put it in a more context from the science and practice of strength training. Because one of the things that you mentioned, like uh, if people can see it's stimulating, right? And then under that in parentheses, you know, you put a choir, okay? Like, because from, an, from a programmer's perspective, these are the intensities that you get to play with. But, you know, and I think uh, Dr. Shivers went over it in his lecture, uh, the deep training intensity is, is like, we, we're using that just so that we're using the same nomenclature of external strength training, but it's actually not a deep training intensity. It's gonna have be how you maximize resources for recovery to start to absorb adaptation, stuff like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I just wanna, I just wanna point out that I think, and again, I, I'm not, uh, trying to be negative with anybody but i think you know again coming from uh, a clinical background uh more, more so than than anything most rehabilitation <laughs> occurs in that in that maintain right so you 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 put it uh i think you put it um you know if, if we're training an athlete <clears throat> what you're going to see is you're going to see that most of the the uh, exercise or the the, the training program is going to occur in this retraining uh, area, which is a broad area. And that will lead to sort of long-term tissue degradation, which potentially leads to injury. On the other side of it, in the rehab world, <clears throat> we're gonna see clients that come to us with tissue injury. And what do most people do? They just put them in a retraining. <laughs> they just put them in retraining. Mm -hmm. so, so how, and, and so what ends up happening is, and this always kind of bothered me a little bit because I never really understood, but Dre, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. Like, remember when we were like in the student clinic and it seemed like every treatment program was supposed to be six weeks, like, like treatment for treatment for everything was two times a week for six weeks. Six. That was. And, and, yeah. And, 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 and I remember when I had my, um, my provincial uh, like file audit, like the guy, the, the guy who audited me was like, you know, you know, your rehab programs are supposed to be like six weeks. And I'm like, six weeks, what are you talking about? And when you really think about it and you really break it down now, like rehabilitation for most clinicians is retraining a couple of times a week. And essentially what happens is natural history takes over and every program is six weeks long, but they didn't actually change anything, right? Because again, people aren't thinking, even in, in, in the rehab world, they aren't thinking about um, uh, like behaviors and intensities and how do I get this and how do I improve this behavior and, and so on and so forth of, of specific tissues. Again, they're thinking about what exercises am I doing for a rotator cuff problem? What exercises am I doing for, for hip impingement? What exercises am I doing for IT band problems? 
oh, uh, I'm doing uh, glute bridges or I'm doing sideline hip abductions or I'm doing rotational work of my rotator cuff for two sets of 10 repetitions or three sets of 10 repetitions. And then it's just exercise upon exercise upon exercise at that level, which all falls into this category up here of this continuum of retraining. And so what ends up happening is, you know, you're just creating this overall sensation of movement and of some level of stimulation for the client where for sure at the end of six weeks, they're going to be like, oh yeah, it feels great. But we, we didn't actually really change the behavior of that shoulder or of that hip or of that IT band issue or, or whatever it is. And this kind of gets me into uh, another little discussion. I don't want to open up a can of worms here because I know we're going to probably move on to other things. We have this adage in the clinical world where, you know, general strengthening is good enough or, you know, just get them strong or, uh, you know, you, you guys have probably all seen this. And I couldn't disagree more with that because ultimately what we're doing is we're telling people to do general exercises at this retraining intensity and just allowing the fact that maybe they haven't moved in those particular ways for a period of time to allow them to feel better. And then we discharge them from the clinic, which doesn't make any sense to me. <clears throat> okay, so here's, I mean, this is a good can of words because when you look at <clears throat> what is the distinguishing factors where clinicians say, yeah, this person's okay to return to play. Like, and, and so, I mean, when you think about that, it's, can they do the same stuff they did before to most extent? Like, can you run a 50 and then slow down without buckling your knee? Yes. Okay. You're good to go back to play, but, but how, how does that, for example, if you, if you injure a tissue and we, I always say, if you, if you injure a tissue, there's lasting anatomical consequences. I, you know, people can try to ignore those consequences. People can say, Oh no, no general strength. Look, the person could do this before they were injured. Now they can do this again. Well, a lot of general strength is going to be decreasing pain. Like if you tell someone to move your arm around instead of not moving it around, well, moving, it's going to give you, you know, it's going to squirt happy juices into your brain and it's going to make you feel better about the motion. And then you're going to feel, oh, I didn't hurt myself. And then more happy juices. And then you associate, oh, I can move without pain. Um, but if you tore through your, you know, your GH joint anteriorly, that capsule no matter what you think is happening in your generic uh, tests, that capsule was damaged. And there is gonna be an anatomical consequence to that damage. And we know through literature that when you're doing the proper training, you're not gonna take that tissue and heal it back to normal. All you're doing is you're trying your absolute best to skew the, the tip the scales so that more good quality tissue is gonna be laid down than bad or not even that just percentage wise a higher percentage of whatever gets laid down would be good quality tissue you probably you're probably not even going to ever tip that scale during the the confines of a rehabilitative of six weeks right which is why we always say when you have an injury that injury is with you forever and ergo you have to consistently keep that capacity very very high such to mitigate further damage you can't just let it go again 
now that your outcome measures are okay. Does that make sense? And another thing that I was gonna say is that the outcome measures we use for return to play are in fact the demonstration of skills in most cases. But we just said that skills, like you said with Latasha's um, uh, research is that if you give me a particular skill, I can damage a, a, a particular tissue that you use to get that skill and your body might be able to compensate for that damage by calling upon other tissues, in which case the, the skill will be demonstrated. It doesn't mean that that hamstring tissue has healed. It just means that that athlete, um, whose job it is to accommodate to things, that's why they're great at what they do, found a way to give you the skill while hiding the detrimental capacity. And that only goes for so long because eventually that detrimental capacity catches up with you and then you have the injury. So once again, I think a lot of it comes from a lack of assessment at the internal level. Is that, is, yeah, is that I, I, would, I would agree with that 100%. That was very well articulated. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Shivers. I try my best. <laughs> uh, you know what? Now that we're on this topic, um, do you have something to say about, well, let's stop here. I'm actually, uh, I clicked on this and the maxims came up. <clears throat> and I think this is just important to talk about because when we're um, teaching, what we try to do is we try to teach people how to set what we call the maxims of training. The maxims being the intent of the exercise, the load you're using, and the effort that you're using. We try to set them very specifically in order to slot the exercise into either a stimulating, a retraining, or a detraining effort. Do you have anything to say with regards to that, uh, uh, Quint? More specifically, how an understanding of the maxims, which is all you have to play with. You have four types of strength training, and you have the maxims. And whatever training you do versus me versus the guy next door, they're all within this. So maybe speak to the specificity of setting maxims the way that we look at it versus the generality of setting maxims in the standard model. If that, does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Let me explain because I don't think that we even do this in the internal model kind of how these maxims uh, emerged and, and right. And so what we did, because our goal was, listen, we know because we're all in the clinic, but we're also working and training athletes that these injuries keep occurring at this joint and connective tissue layer, right? And we knew that, you know, with what we already do that we were training them, but we were getting all the untrained athletes that were blowing up. And then the issue that we had was then when that athlete leaves town, where we leave town and their strength coach is like, well, what do I do? We never had a way to like articulate what you have to do, which is why this model now exists. Cause we go, oh, hey, this person needs input one, input two, input three, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. But to circle back around to the maxims of strength. So what we figured out was, you know, we didn't figure it out, I'm sorry, Medvedev, the, the credit goes to the, to, to the Soviet se uh, sequencing system right? And those athletes and those coaches and those scientists that essentially these four methods came about. And then what we saw was like each method, right? It constrained the intent, the load and the effort at essentially optimal levels to listed a very specific output, right? And that's what made it the superior way to train for whatever it is you were training, right? And so what realistically happened, what we saw uh, was you know, with the Soviets, the, their dominance in sport was because they were able to control training at that external level. 
how Westside was able to set up their own system of conjugate training for, um, for powerlifting and for the training of absolute strength was specifically uh, sticking or adhering to those methods. But what we had was we had a different issue where we, had, we knew that these were the methods that you used to strength train. So then we had to start to figure out how to funnel it down. And what you see is the same thing uh, makes sense. So, so for instance, if you're trying to increase absolute strength in a lift, right? So you got a power lifter, hey, I want a bigger box squat. Okay, there's a superior way to doing it. Exercise science all agrees on that. That's the maximal effort way. And in order to do that, the load is gonna have to be what? Well, you're initially your intent, right? Training intent is, hey, I'm trying to increase this extra, this, this, this barbell lift, which is their skill, right? So, so they're trying to lift that. So that's their intent, increase absolute strength in that lift. The load, if they're gonna do that has to be maximal. If it's sub-maximal, it's not gonna be stimulating. It'll be retraining. So, you, right, and there's a whole lit, litany of research and all that stuff on what happens when you use a submaximal weight to train for maximal strength, you detrain, right? Okay, so you have load, F, so that's load. And then if the load is maximal and you are to accomplish that lift, then guess what happens? It will have elicited from you your momentary maximal effort. So hence maximal effort. So what we did was we took the maxims and then we start, and after we saw that that's how all of external strength training was, then what we did was we go, well, let's start to constrain these for joint, uh, joint workspace, right? Which is our input cycle number one, right? And what we did is pails and rails is already out there, right? And people are using pails and rails with, with all sorts of success at all levels, right? But we're talking about like, okay, but what is the superior way? If you're gonna use pails and rails, to, uh, to start to increase and acquire more joint workspace, there has to be a superior way to do it. There is, it's doing it in your maximal effort to then start to acquire absolute joint space, just like you would acquire absolute strength, right? And so that's kind of how the maxims emerged, right? And how they literally are, are it's just an evolution of external strength training, but now down into the internal level, and now into all of the biological determinants of, uh, of strength, right? Which is gonna be joint workspace, connective tissue architecture, connective tissue load bearing capacity, and then the different types of muscle tissues. So whether or not you're gonna to try to condition muscle tissue uh, fibers, whether it's slow or fast, or whether you're gonna to try to increase and scale up the size of those fibers. So what the maxims do and what the input cycles do in the FRS internal strength model is it constrains the practitioner so that it's a plug and play system whereby they have that NBA athlete we're talking about and they go, hey, I know that this guy isn't turning ankle dorsiflexion. I know that he lacks uh, optimal joint function. Immediately it tells you, right? Okay, this is gonna be input cycle number one. And now you know how to train that athlete in time to meet that athlete's immediate need. So that then, you know, when you're doing that internal strength training the training effects primarily occur internally, right? So you guys have already said it, but as joint range of motion starts to increase, you have access now to more muscle tissue. As you give the nervous system more access to more muscle tissue, force output can start to increase. As you gain access to, to more connective tissue, now reactive strength starts to become something that increases. But in a nutshell, that's kind of how the, the maxims arrived. And then that's how we then took the maxims to constrain it for every biological, or as like Shivers was saying, how do you uh, uh, how do we train uh, optimally for all of these trainable things 
that maybe prior to the model, people like, oh, you have a connective tissue issue. Well, how do you train it? Oh, stretch. Okay, well now, now we know that, hey, you can train it. Like you were saying to acquire more length to change the architecture, it's input cycle too. Are you trying to see how that architecture tissue organizes itself to be able to dissipate, counteract and absorb some sort of force? Okay, that's load bearing capacity. So just giving, uh, just essentially trying to constrain uh, the, the maxims constrain work so that work gets funneled into a specific biological determinant at optimal levels. So instead of sending noise, it sends a signal. And, and again, if you know them to that extent and to that specificity and you hone those maxims uh, specifically, when you put someone into a stimulating level, I think another thing that people have the problem with the volume is they feel like more is better, pain is better, um, that the, you know, but what you're saying, I think, is that if you understand the constraints to that level, to the level of the tissue, and then specifically in that tissue, which particular cell type in that tissue, and then how do we constrain so that that cell type is maximized, et cetera, et cetera. Getting back to it uh, with regards to volume, how many sets do you need, uh, Quint? Like, if you're, listen, if you're a bodybuilder, and by the way, like you said, powerlifting is a sport. There's a sport that is dedicated to the development of, of power. It's its own sport, meaning that if I want to get better at soccer, I shouldn't train another sport, right? I, I shouldn't be a power lifter in that that's its own thing. And I think people often forget that bodybuilding is a sport. Like we know the sport of bodybuilding. We know how to manipulate the sport of bodybuilding. So then people, you know, I want to be a soccer player, but I also want to have uh, awesome biceps and triceps. And I also want to have a, uh, a, a, a bench press, like a power lifter. And I also want to have, uh, you know, whatever, uh, but, but again, adding more to the volume problem, but even with we're, when we're talking about something like building muscle tissue, let's just take something that people understand when the maxims are set properly, how many sets do you need to send the signal? Yeah. I mean, one, <laughs> I mean, Right, because and it's all coming back down to one, right? Like that's an interesting part. Uh, I remember Lou telling me it's called max effort for a reason. Max effort is singular; it's not plural, mm -hmm. right? Okay, mm -hmm. and so you see everything starting to come back to this single rep, right? If you ask a high-level bodybuilder that has no background in exercise science, you go, "Hey, you just did, uh, you just did six reps. You tried to get a seventh, but you didn't do it. Which rep do you think is going to?" elicit a stimulating input uh stimulating uh whatever it is you're trying to train right they would like they'd be like well obviously the last rep it's the heart it was it elicited everything that i had mm -hmm. and it compressed me to start to be able to like push me to that limit and then that limit goes you know how all of these biological stress responsive tissues right that that are that, that encapsulate the joint the capsule which is what input one is going to focus on and then input two and three, connective tissue and muscle tissue. All of these are biological stress responsive tissue where it's gonna, it's, that, that tissue is gonna get stressed to a stimulating level. And that stimulating level is what signals, hey, listen, and what the body does with that information and on a very simplistic manner, right? Is it sees this stimulating stress and work coming into it. And it goes, holy shit, I think I'm gonna see that same stress again in the future. I need to start to scale up and overcompensate to better handle that stress in the future. And now what's happening? Well, now you're changing the internal system to better handle stress. 
which is essentially internal strength. That, that's our definition of internal strength training. All right, so I'm going to put this up. <clears throat> maybe we can use this as the last, uh, I don't know how much time we have, but maybe we can use this as the last kind of uh, talking point because I think it, it pulls it in um, pretty well. So I, as you guys know, I, I was just recently at the, um, the NBA Combine and I was lecturing to the, the strength and conditioning coaches. And we talked about this before that the NBA has a specific, a specifically interesting thing going on now with regards to this volume problem or what they would refer to or what they would think as, as the loading problem, whereby <clears throat> high level athletes are taking loading breaks. So rather than, you know, well, we'll get into that, but what they're doing is they're skipping games. So they're actually taking load <clears throat> and they're thinking about load as this generic level of thing whereby if you, if you can calculate when the load is too much for that person in general, then if I just stop them playing, that I'm somehow going to decrease their, their chances of hurting themselves because the overall load has been reduced. Okay. Uh, you would say that I, I, I uh, sum that up pretty good, Mike. That's the yeah. idea. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when I went to this, it, it, uh, this isn't technically unique to the NBA. You were just lecturing to the NBA coaches. Maybe I was, uh, are they, are they, is there, are there loading breaks occurring? And uh, I know NBA is very predominant. Like there's a, a lot of high level players. It's been in the news, but you're saying this about other sports as well. Yeah. You look at football, NFL, PA, everyone's trying to manage load. So I think this is, uh, I think, I think this yeah. is a widely uh, adopted uh, theory. theory. Okay. So what I said was this, and it speaks to a lot of the stuff we were saying. Um, <clears throat> of course, I'm not saying that decreased load is not, is, isn't necessarily going to help. Overall, if you look at a thousand NBA players and you say we decrease the load of 50% of them by 50%, probably <clears throat> you're going to get a number demonstrating that this is a good idea. Does that make sense? You know, but the problem is, is that you can't take these generic concepts and then apply them to the individual player. And to them, it matters, right? It's, I, they don't care if the next guy is able to play without injury. They care about themselves. So what I told the, them is that we, we, we were lecturing on this. This was one of my first slides that I ever put together back, I don't know how many years ago, back at a time where I will say that the concept of load being the stressor that leads to injury, it might've been known but it was not specifically discussed in the way that we are discussing it. You would agree, Mike, we were there at the same time uh, with regards to therapy school and, and whatever. So when we brought this up, we go, listen, injury is easy. Injury is the load is greater than the capacity of that tissue to absorb the load, which, which later leads to injury. What I think happened was this concept started to get popular I'm going to say it's because of us, but you know, that's maybe arrogant. Maybe this was something that was just coming and we were on the, the, the upward cusp of it. But I think what happened is this equation became more and more solidified in people's brains. And then what happened ultimately is that they started concentrating on the wrong variable. So in other words, they imagine that I, 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 I erase this capacity word. They started to say <clears throat> load equals injury. Okay. Um, in which case, all that mattered is to decrease the overall load. 
But what we're saying is that you forgot about the other variable, which is the capacity of the individual tissues that are sustaining those loads. And where you might decrease the load on one side, if you're not increasing capacity on the other, then it's a race to the bottom. Like I guarantee you, I can prevent any injury if I just reduce the load to zero, right? And that's where we are now. Like in, in an NBA, what, let's say an MLB, how many games they play a year? Like 47,000 games a year or whatever it is. Like that, that amount of load, I mean, you can't have half the players playing, right? We have to play with the other side of the variable to jump up the capacities. That's the first uh, point that I'll make and then I'll let you guys go. The other thing, or I'll let you guys riff on this, but the other thing that I think might be important to talk about is that the load is not equally distributed, right? It, it's not generic load comes down, therefore you're okay. The loads are very specific to the sport, which is why different sports have different injury um, injuries that occur at different rates, right? So in basketball, going back to, to that, the vast, vast majority of the loading is in the lower body, right? There's the upper body loading, of course, but the vast majority of the overall load is in the lower body. If you take the lower body, you can subcategorize this and you can say, well, what are the highest rates of injuries in the lower body? So Achilles tendinopathy, jumper's knee, or patellar tendinopathy. And you go, okay, so clearly, not only is the load not distributed over the entire body, but even that it's concentrated in the lower body, we can further define the funnels and say that we're funneling information, too much information into the Achilles tendon or into the patellar tendon. And then you start to say, well, if the person's patellar tendon or, or Achilles tendon is detrained, untrained or damaged, you really can't lower that load anymore, right? Like how low can you, can you lower that load? What you have to do is start to bump up that capacity. But then we look at the training and we've done this for years. We, we've, I, I mean, you know, there's a lot to say about experience, but we've been around the world. We've reviewed programs for various NBA, NFL, UFC, all of these things. And when you look at the programs that people are, are and I think this will sum up what we're trying to say, when you look at the exercise programs in the standard model, almost none of it is specifically tailored to funnel work into the specific tissues which are more predominantly taking the load in a very specific way. Ergo, the training is, is doing nothing to manage this load problem. The training, if anything, is adding significantly to the loading problem. I'll stop it there. And then Mike, maybe you want to jump off there and, and, and say a few things. Uh, first of all, I, I would agree with all of that. And the reason that I think specifically the NBA, but also other sports and, and the NFL do it the way they do it is because they don't otherwise know that the training can be modified to mitigate against load. So they take the global approach to just passively reduce load, which is, hey, don't play for this period of time, so on and so forth. <clears throat> I don't know if you made a, just a, a slip up uh, in what you just said, uh, but I just wanna clarify it. So in somebody who, you know, if we're looking at the NBA again, and somebody who, <clears throat> 
has a patellar tendinopathy or Achilles tendinopathy, which are two very common injuries in that. I, I don't believe that it's because that area is getting too much information. It's because that area is not getting any information. Mm. So if we try to analogize this, you know, and we say, okay, there's, there's joint tissue, there's connective tissue, there's muscle tissue, and we're going to send a text to each one of those areas through our training. Uh, the only area that's really receiving that text is muscle. <clears throat> the Achilles tendon is not getting that text. It's not coming through. There's some problem with the Wi-Fi, whatever. So it's not that that is not that it's getting too much information and therefore it's, it's essentially breaking down or, or degrading to some level. It's because there's no signal there. There's no information and therefore it has nothing to draw upon to actually improve how it can then generate um, a, an output because it doesn't have any input to, to make that decision from. I'm talking about it like it's a sentient being, but you know what I mean, right? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I think ultimately, and we had discussed this, this lecture that you were giving before about this whole loading thing. <clears throat> I think there has to be this, this paradigm shift or this framework shift of, well, Let's, let's try to analogize it again. As clinicians, we would never say to somebody, hey, you injured your shoulder doing X, Y, or Z. So let's just take a period of time and don't do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you analogize it like that, nobody's going to pay you for that. Nobody, nobody's going to return and say, yeah, I really trust this guy because all he's really doing is saying, don't do that stuff. So it would be the same. It, basically, we're taking these high-level athletes and we're saying, okay, for a period of time, don't do what you are getting paid to do. So somehow there has to be a, a, a framework shift. We will lead that framework shift where we have to say, okay, well, this passive reduction in load is not going to work. And again, I, I think you said it really well there. <clears throat> uh, you know, we're, they're just looking at it, load equals something, in this case, injury, they're forgetting that whole other bucket of how that load is mitigated. And that is the framework shift of really understanding that, yes, that comes from training. Yes, that comes from skill work. But again, based on everything that we've discussed up to this point, there are specificities of that, that can be managed appropriately uh, in individual buckets of capacity or abundance, whereby that load will be counteracted and obviously injuries can be um, mitigated against. Brilliant. I, uh, did you have something to add to that, uh, Quint? Um, I think it's interesting because just to circle back to the volume problem, they're saying there's too much volume doing the skill, there's not enough capacity. Right. So even if you take that passive break, right, you can turn that passive break into now an active break to now start to specifically train. Like you were saying, basketball is already being a feedback mechanism to say, hey, Achilles issues, patella tendonitis issues. Right. So start to actively use that and start to use, you know, internal strength model to start to train connective tissue architecture, connective tissue load bearing capacity, joint workspace. And then what that's doing, like you said, and or using this image is that's going to bring the capacity up mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the other side of the equation. Yeah. Like it, that, that, that just kind of clued me in. It, it, it was, uh, 
I don't know the ins and outs of the specifics uh, of the injury or, or exactly what was done in the training plan, but the year before Kawhi came to the Raptors and won us the championship, he essentially, I think it was the, the year before, he essentially missed the whole season because of a quadriceps problem, a, uh, like a distal quad tendinopathy, if I remember correctly. And the problem that the Spurs were having, because he was with the Spurs at that point in time, was his skill on the basketball court was actually degrading. <clears throat> um, he couldn't push off. He couldn't drive. He, he wasn't like the player that he normally would be. But the problem that they were having was he also couldn't get into any of the training positions that they wanted to get him into to actually try to improve, improve that. Because again, they were thinking, okay, well, his, his ability to push off is problematic because of this quad problem. So we want to put him in a bent knee, but he can't get in that because he's got a quad problem. Mm -hmm. So he missed the whole season, mm -hmm. right? You and I, all of us know that, you know, <clears throat> a 12 month rehabilitation for a distal quad tendinopathy is a little out of the norm, <clears throat> right? And so what they were trying to do is they were trying to, you know, minimize his loading but not actually looking at ways that they could and again I, I, i'm not i don't know the specifics so i don't want to like say that it was completely wrong or whatever but i'm from what i remember reading about it is it was it was this sort of difficulty and but you know when you when you think about our model that that would be easy ways to get in there and start adding you know simultaneous and synchronous training to different qualities of tissue that would ultimately, you know, maybe get him further along in that, in that process. I, uh, I guess we can, we can end it there, but I, I do want to say, I want to tell one little story, uh, just so it, it kind of bookends everything that we're talking about. So I'm sitting there, I won't leave anybody's name and this is not meant to be insulting to anybody, but it's just, it was interesting to me. Okay. So I'm sitting there um, and I'm about to lecture at that at the combine and the person that was presenting before me was one of the persons who was they were um, they, they 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 are working for the, the company who has the programs that they visualize the players <clears throat> using cameras camera optics you know different angles and they draw information and the whole presentation was about you know the, the number of things that we can see now from, you know, how long the player plays to the number of times they, 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 they sprint forward versus sprint backwards versus sprint sideways, uh, how many times they bound off of one leg versus two leg. I mean, it went so crazy as to the fact that they were like, we can tell exactly how much spin is in the ball and put that against the percentage of balls that go in the basket versus the balls that go out of the basket. I, and I'm sitting there, I was like, holy shit, is this fucking impressive? Like, this is, this is a lot of stuff. But then I, I, I had that other question that I often have in the back of my head, which is, yeah, but who gives a shit? Like, like who cares? Like, you have all that information. So there was a, a person who, a colleague of mine beside me who has his PhD. Um, I don't remember exactly what the PhD was on, but he was studying these kinds of concepts, this concept of uh, I forget what they call it, the information, they, there's a word for it that they take from the electronic means. Um, but, I, but he goes, yeah, they can, they can do this. And I did my PhD and you can find out this quality and that quality, whatever. 
And then I said, does any of it matter? And he looks at me and he goes, no, no, none of it matters. He goes, if you look at the if, if subsequent studies that he actually did, he goes, the only thing that we found was, was correlated was time on the court. So in other words, the only variable that actually matters significantly is how much time you actually spend playing, right? Which, which again, goes back to this concept where maybe we should just fucking stop playing. Like, maybe that's the answer. I can cure all injuries. Just to, like, I'm pretty sure every sport, every sport's going to have the association where time played is going to relate uh, to injury, right? And, and it just, it was funny because there's so much effort in my mind that was that's wasted on finding all of this information, which I suppose could be good and, and important. But unless we fix this volume problem, and unless we redirect the, the minds of these trainers back to the idea that training is the capacity answer to the volume problem. Um, but what you don't want to do is add to detrimental loading in the process of training. And that is, uh, I think, is a good way to bookend uh, our conversation uh, with regards to the volume problem. We can go on forever, but I think we covered most of the things um, that, 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 that I would uh, consider important. You guys would agree? Agreed. Agreed. Okay, so uh, I think we can uh, put a pin in that one. Um, anything that we should uh, discuss before we go? Uh, Mike, what's the your Substack um, uh, thing? Can you tell us uh, you're doing some really good writing on these topics, you and John? Um, yeah, Quint and I. Uh, yeah. So yeah, we do have a Substack. Uh, that we we publish on Tuesdays and Fridays. Uh, again, it's it's concepts that that we've discussed here: programming, internal strength model, FRS based stuff uh, related to high performance. So the Substack is called Absolute: The Art and Science of Human Performance. Substack has an app. You can find it on the app. You can Google it. Um, yeah. Brilliant. That, that, there's a lot of that, the stuff that we're talking about uh, being written in there. It's a great resource. Um, otherwise, um, with regards to seminars for the internal strength method, for those FR, uh, FRS people, uh, we have dates coming up in, I'm looking at my calendar, um, in the UK uh, on September 24th, 25th, we're going to have a ISM there. We have another ISM happening in Los Angeles, uh, or actually in Long Beach, uh, in October on the 1516. Uh, and then I just posted today we have a Toronto date for the internal strength method um, in November uh, 5th and 6th. Uh, if you're not one of the FRS people, uh, we have a variety of FRC um, courses coming up, FR courses, which would give you the prerequisite to actually attend that or to go to functional range assessment or to kin stretch or wherever else in the system uh, you want to go. Uh, so with that, gentlemen, thank you very much. Um, we're going to talk again soon, I hope. Sounds good, man. Have a good day. See you.